boys and girls, here is what you get when you join the Secret Squadron. This membership card with your very own Secret Squadron number, this official Secret Squadron manual, and this combination badge and decoder. Look, here's how the decoder works. I'll give you a two-word clue. And the second word is in our secret code. The first word is watch. Now, here is the secret code word. Write down these numbers. 17, 3, 20. Now, set your secret decoder like this for code A3. Then decode this important clue to next week's adventure. If you don't have your decoder badge, here's how you can get one for your very own. First, get a jar of the official Secret Squadron drink, delicious chocolate-flavored Ovaltine, the food drink for rocket power. Then cut out the wax paper disc that covers the Ovaltine jar and send that disc with your name, your address, to me, Captain Midnight, Box P, Chicago 77, Illinois. That's all. Send no money. It's free to every boy and girl who joins the Secret Squadron. And when you receive your Secret Decoder badge, membership card with your very own Secret Squadron number, and 12-page manual, you'll be a full-fledged member. Remember, get your Ovaltine. The food drink for rocket power. Hot or cold, it's got what it takes to help you be a leader in your gang. So every day, drink instant Ovaltine. So I want you to send in for that secret decoder and see if it still works, if you get that. You know, these days we just feel like we have everything that we possibly need, but if we just had one of those Captain Midnight secret decoders, we would have everything we possibly need. I, you know, I remember having something like that when I was younger, and, and you get these clues and you try to figure it out, but there's just no way you can figure out these clues. They make no sense at all, unless you have the Captain Midnight secret decoder. And if you have that, everything falls into place and everything makes sense. You know, I think if we're honest, many of us would think from time to time, what's the secret to the code of the Bible? What's the secret to getting God to hear our prayers and do the things that we want him to do when we want him to do those? How do we get God to solve all the mysteries that we have in our life? And there's all kinds of people that will help you with that. You can watch some of them on TV and they'll say, well, if you will just uh, uh, take this prayer cloth and send us $50 to prove your trust, then God will answer your prayers. If you just name it and claim it, then, then God will answer your prayers. And if you do these things in the right order, then God will do for you what you want him to do for you. And people search for the codes of the Bible. And I don't really believe that they're there. I don't think they're going to find those secrets. But you will find that there is a way of life that God blesses. There's a way of our life that if we live that kind of life, then God will bless the lives that we have here on this earth. And so today we're going to talk about King Hezekiah. And I think there's some valuable things that he can teach us about how we should live if we want to bring God's blessing into our life. We're in chapter 16 of the story. And the story is very helpful for us at this time because it's written chronologically. And it helps us understand the sequence of the events of the Old Testament. And so we've learned the last couple of weeks that the nation of Israel has become a divided nation. There's the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. During this 208-year period, there were 38 kings, and almost all of them, 33 of those kings, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There was only five kings that followed the ways of God. 
And so the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were known for their pride and their rebellion and their idolatry. And during this 208-year span, God also sent nine prophets to try to warn the people. And their message was, you're not doing things God's way. And here's what's going to happen. If you continue down this path, you will be destroyed. But the people just ignored them. They continued to do things their own way. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting with verse 15, this is what it says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. And so he didn't have to do it. The mess that they found themselves in was a mess that they made themselves. But because God is a God of great love for his people, he sent one prophet after another to warn and warn and warn and warn again. But they're so stubborn, they just continue to do whatever they want to do. Eventually, God has had enough. Even though he has compassion on them, they just continue to laugh at his warnings. And then we're told that God's anger could no longer be contained. And so God is a God of amazing compassion. He is a God of incredible mercy. And so he warns again and again because he's a heavenly father who loves us. But there comes a point where enough is enough. And so we read that the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. The Assyrian army had been flexing its muscle in the region. They'd been conquering different nations. There's 185,000 soldiers strong in this army. And they come up against the northern kingdom and God doesn't protect them. Now, on their own, they didn't stand a chance anyway. But if God would have protected them, they would have been safe. But God didn't protect them. And so the Assyrian army comes in, destroys the capital city, Samaria. And, and then the Israelites in the northern kingdom, they're spread throughout Assyria. And in the meantime, the southern kingdom is watching all of this unfold. Now, if you were watching this from a distance and you saw what happened to the northern kingdom, you'd probably feel like God has just done warning us. You'd be like a little child who hears their parents' warnings again and again, and they don't do anything. But there comes this certain point where it makes them understand, wow, I guess my parents really mean it this time. And it's a warning from God. Here's what's going to happen to you if you keep on this path. And so in the book of Isaiah, we read the warnings of the southern kingdom about what happened to the northern kingdom. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 2, starting with verse 6. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasure. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground, from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. You know, the Lord just can't ignore their sins. God is a just God. He just can't pretend like everything is okay. And so eventually God brings down the proud. And Isaiah uses the northern kingdom as a warning to the people of the southern kingdom. And God sometimes uses his word at just the right time to get our attention. And maybe that's what's happening to you today. You didn't think about it on your way here, but there is an area of your life where God is trying to get your attention. And that's why you're here today. 
because you're on this path that's leading to destruction. And if you will just listen and respond now, the grace of God will save you from a whole lot of heartache. But you stop and think about it because you just know. Maybe nobody else here knows, but you know what it is. You know what the issue is between you and God. And maybe if you knew what was going to happen today, if you knew this was going to be the topic today, you just wouldn't have come because we don't like hearing ways that we let down God by the way we live our lives. But God speaks to us through Scripture right when we need the warning. And another way God speaks to us is through the example of others who have been down the same path that we are going down. By watching them, we can see where we're headed if we don't turn back. And so the southern kingdom has seen what's happened to the northern kingdom, and they've been warned. Now, the Assyrian army, they have turned their focus on the southern kingdom. And it's a strong army, 185,000 soldiers, and they have the southern kingdom in their sights. And honestly, it doesn't look very good for the southern kingdom. It looks like there's no hope at all. But there is this X factor. There is this secret weapon, and his name is Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is the first king since David who really had a heart for the Lord, and he was doing things differently. And as a result of how he lived and how he ruled, God's wrath was spared on his life and on the nation. So Hezekiah has removed all the idols from the land, and he's obeyed God. And the Assyrians come, and the people are afraid. But Hezekiah speaks to the southern kingdom, and he brings hope. Here's what he says in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. I say the army is just flesh here. We have God, and if God is with us, who can be against us? But the Assyrians don't really want to fight if they don't have to. They'd rather just kind of peacefully take the land. And so King Sennacherib of the Assyrian army sends in some messengers to Jerusalem, to the capital of the southern kingdom, and he sends them in to speak to the people. Not to speak to the king, not to speak to the leaders, but to speak to the people. And he threatens them, 2 Chronicles 32, 13. Surely you must realize what I and the other kings of Assyria before me have done to all the people of the earth. Were any of the gods of those nations able to rescue their people from my power? Which of their gods was able to rescue its people from the destructive power of my predecessors? What makes you think that your God can rescue you from me? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't let him fool you like this. I say it again. No God of any nation or kingdom has ever been able to rescue his people from me or my ancestors. How much less will your God rescue you from my power? This is one of those statements that if you're anywhere near that guy speaking, you just want to back up because there's going to be lightning. There's going to be some destroying going on and you don't want to be near him because he is calling out God. He's saying, listen, no God has ever been able to stop me. What makes you think your God could stop me? And so what he's done is he sent these messengers to tell God's people a lie about what God can and cannot do. The same thing happens today. There are messengers all around us that are telling people lies about what God can and cannot do. We see it all the time. There are people who are facing what seem to be insurmountable odds. It seems like it's too big for God. It's too messy for God to clean up. It's too broken for God to put back together. It's too bad for him to redeem. And the enemy keeps whispering in our ear, not even God can save you from this one. And so we believe the lies of the enemy. We live in fear. 185,000 soldiers, what can we do? 
But look what King Hezekiah does. Second Chronicles 32, verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cry out in prayer to heaven about this. And so Hezekiah and Isaiah, they get on their knees and they say to God, God, we need some help. We're desperate here. They were desperate for God to rescue them, so they cry out to heaven. And if the army is at your door, this is what you should be doing. You should be crying out to God for help. But the next verse is great, verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers of the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. So you see what happens there? They cry out to God and say, God, we don't know how we can beat this army of 185,000. So God sends an angel and totally destroys them. There's no battle at all. God sends the angel. He wipes out 185,000 soldiers. And the message comes through, be strong and courageous. Because God is with us. And really, if God is with us, that's all we need. What was it about Hezekiah that brought the blessing of God on his life and on the nation of Israel? Verse 26 tells us that the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. But we know that when Hezekiah died, the nation fell. But while he reigned, they experienced God's blessing and protection. What was it that brought that? I mean, it worked for them, and we want it to work for us as well. For us personally, for us in this church, we want it to work. What was it that caused God to spare the southern kingdom when it appeared like there was no hope at all? What was the secret? Well, there's no secret, really, but there were some things that brought God's blessing on his life. Number one, Hezekiah had a commitment to purity. He had this commitment to purifying God's people. Unlike the kings before him, Hezekiah went out went out of his way to purify this whole nation and to purify the temple. He got rid of the idolatry in the land. He wanted to purify the nation. Second Chronicles 29.3 tells us about the beginning of his reign. It says, in the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He summoned the priest and Levites to meet with him in the courtyard east of the temple. And he said to them, listen to me, you Levites, purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord the God of our ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his dwelling place. They turned their backs on him. And then verse 15 says, these men called together their fellow Levites and they all purified themselves. And then they began to cleanse the temple of the Lord just as the king had commanded and they were careful to follow all the Lord's instructions in their work. The priest went into the sanctuary of the temple of the Lord and cleansed it, and they took out of the temple courtyard all the defiled things that they found. And so Hezekiah took over the leadership, and as soon as he took over the leadership, he said, you know, we haven't been doing things God's way, but today, that's all going to change. And he began the purification. And he purifies the temple and removes everything that was offensive to God and reopens the church so that people could come in and worship. And when you look at our culture today, purity is probably not a word you would use to describe any of our culture today. And it's a sad thing because we can't even see it much of the time. We don't recognize the things that are in our life that are impure because they've just always been there. We've grown up with those things around us that are offensive to God, and we don't even recognize that they need to be removed. And the problem is that we compare our level of purity to our culture instead of to the holiness of God. And we should be measuring it by God's word. We can see that it needs to be purified, what needs to be removed, what needs to be cleansed. And we'll see those things when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God. 
You know, the FDA has certain standards of the purity of the food that we eat. And we just trust people. We just trust that things are okay. Here's an example. Canned mushrooms. Canned mushrooms can include more than 20 maggots of any size and 75 mites per 100 grams. We just trust that it's all clean. Every 100 grams of cinnamon, ground cinnamon, it's okay to include 400 or more insect fragments. So that could be legs or heads or wings or thoraxes and 22 or more rodent hairs. Frozen berries. Fruit's got to be safe, right? Up to 60% of frozen berries can be moldy with an average of four or more larvae and 10 or more whole insects per 500 grams. Now, to give you an idea of what that means, the average fruit pie, like an apple cherry pie, it calls for 550 grams of fruit. So just reading this list over and over would be the best diet plan I think that you would ever have. But we might think the standard of purity for our food is pretty high, and so we just trust that. We just accept that. And maybe the standard of purity in our, our lives needs to be reevaluated. Maybe we need to look deep and see what's really there. Ephesians 5 talks about being washed in the Word, where we allow God's Word to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Maybe that's what we need to do. In 1 John 1.8, John talks about how you purify yourselves under this new covenant. And this is what it looks like. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, if we open up the doors to the temple of our heart and we drag everything that's impure out of there, everything that defiles God, we drag it out of there and we put it in the light and we confess it. He is faithful and just to purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't, we don't purify ourselves, but through Jesus Christ, God purifies us when we confess our sins, when we repent of it. And until we're ready to do that, we shouldn't expect God's blessing on our life. But sometimes we do that. We probably often do that. We ask for God's blessing in our life when we know good and well that we're offending God with some certain areas of our life. Let's say you go on vacation and you come back a couple of months later. You got a lot of vacation time. But you come back a couple of months later and your grass has grown up so tall that you know your little lawnmower can't cut through that tall grass. But you know your neighbor has a pretty big John Deere riding mower and and it would cut through that grass. So you, you go over to ask your neighbor if you can borrow his mower. He's offered it before. You're pretty sure that he'll let you use it again. But as you're walking over to his house, he has this little annoying dog that just yaps all the time and makes a mess in your yard. And right now he's biting at your heels. And so you just give him a little kick. I mean, you don't want to hurt him. You just want to send a message. But you give him this little kick and you look up and there's your neighbor on the porch and he's just watched this whole thing happen. So... Is now the time to say, hey, can I borrow your big John Deere tractor? No, it's not the time to do that. Now is the time to come clear on an issue here. First, you need to talk about you kicking his dog. Where is it that you have this issue with God? What is it between you and God right now that needs to be addressed in your life? What do you need to confess? Because before we ask God for his blessing, we need to acknowledge the fact we've kicked the dog. And that needs to be addressed first. Well, Hezekiah repented of his pride. God's favor returned to Hezekiah when he repented in the pride of his life. So what is it you need to repent of? Could be pride, could be selfishness, could be an attitude or an activity or a habit or an addiction. Could be music, could be entertainment, could be a relationship that needs to be made right. 
could be a secret sin that you need to share with a brother or sister in Christ and bring it out in the open. What is it between you and God that needs to be addressed? At the end of his book, Isaiah talks about God's power, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And he says to the people, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. In other words, it's not that he can't help you, nor his ear too dull to hear. I mean, he can hear you just fine. Here's the problem. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And Hezekiah purified his life, and we have to as well if we want to receive God's blessing. Another commitment Hezekiah made was a commitment to prayer. When the Assyrians were ready to run them over, 185,000 of them, Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed in desperation. Later, in 2 Chronicles 32, 24, Hezekiah became very sick. The Bible says, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death, but he prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign, and he spared his life. In desperation, Hezekiah prays, and God acts on his behalf. We will never be a praying church that God has called us to be until we realize our desperation, until we realize how dependent we really are on him. And when we realize how desperate we are, praying just becomes natural. It's acknowledging, God, we need your help. We can't do this without you. We need you to save us. This Thursday has been designated the National Day of Prayer. We have that every year, but for some reasons, I just think this year is probably more important than any year that we've had in recent history. A time that we as Christians come and we just pray to God and we admit where we're wrong and we just say, God, we can't do this without you. We need your help. And I want to encourage you to to participate. We've got several ways on Thursday, starting with breakfast and ending with a prayer walk in the evening. Several ways on Thursday you can get involved. You can find that on our website. I'd encourage you to get involved in that this week. Hezekiah prayed with great faith and the great dependence on the Lord and he witnessed God move in a powerful way personally and in the nation. And it's not a secret code. It's a commitment to purity, a humble repentance, and a commitment to prayer. And so during Hezekiah's life, God spares the southern kingdom. Then Hezekiah's son Manasseh doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. And they return to idols and pride. And eventually the northern kingdom, like the southern kingdom, is simply wiped out. God simply cannot ignore sin. And you get to the place in the story where it seems like nothing is working out for God's people at all. We tried the law, they couldn't keep the law. We tried the kings, the kings were proud and disobedient. We tried the prophets, but nobody listens to the prophets. It just seems like there's no hope. But then Isaiah, beginning in his prophecy about Jesus, we read through the book of Isaiah, and it's all about that. 700 years before he's born, Isaiah begins to say, here comes our hope. That's why Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel, because it's all about Jesus. As we're going through this book, the story, by the time you get here, we're halfway through, it's pretty easy to think, you know what, I'm getting tired of the Old Testament. And that's kind of the purpose of the Old Testament. You just get tired of it. It it doesn't work. And it's all pointing to Jesus because he is our only hope. He's the only one who can save us. Folks, we need a commitment to purity. We need a commitment to repentance where we understand the purity in our life that should be there and it's not. There's impurities there that need to be taken out and we repent. We ask God, forgive us of this and we commit to prayer. 
Maybe today that's where you are. You just need this time where you need to say, God, I, I, I know I'm a mess. I know there's a lot of impurity in me. I need to bring this stuff out. I need to, to come to you and just say, I need you to take over everything. And so we offer this time of invitation for just that, that you can come. There's going to be people at the decision point rooms where you can come and just say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I can't do this on my own. I'm, I'm desperate here. I, I understand that I've got to have him. And so you just say, Jesus, I want you to have my life. I want you to have control of everything. I, I can't do this on my own. So if you're at that point today, then we're going to stand here in just a moment, and we're going to invite you to make your way to the decision point and say, help me, pray for me, help lead me to Jesus Christ today. So if you're ready to do that, we're ready to accept you. If you just need someone to pray with you, there's going to be somebody there that can pray with you. So right now we're going to stand and sing as we do. This is a song of commitment to committing our lives to God. Let's stand together and sing.